What a wonderful reminder in Christ alone. And so thank you to the Ford family for bringing us our, our song and praise this morning. Now we come to God's word and uh, the theme for us this morning is preparation, part one. Preparation from John chapter 19 verses 30 to 37. Now the current crisis that the world is going through has meant that gathering together as the people of God is all but impossible in the way that we were doing it before. But we have this medium available to us through the internet. And while trying to keep things as normal as possible, uh, moving to this format is not automatic. Therefore, there was a lot of preparation that had to be done, a lot of effort that had to be brought together in order to make this possible under the grace of God. Now, many things in life take a lot of preparation. Of course, despite many times, despite all our, our best efforts, all our best intentions, uh, things don't always go to plan. One of the things that uh, is interesting that in our current uh, situation is that many people have commented we were not prepared for this whether it's the hospitals, whether it's the government, whether it's people themselves, that were surprised at how this slow-moving uh, and invisible uh, disease has, has been travelling throughout the world and therefore people f- still feel unprepared. Now, this is something that was very different with the life of Jesus. His life, his death and his eventual resurrection Everything went according to God's sovereign plan. Nothing nothing was out of place. Now, last week our message was based on the solemn words of Jesus from the cross. It is finished, tetelestai in the Greek, before he gave up his spirit into the hands of the Father. So our first, our first heading this morning from verse 30 is he laid down his life. He laid down his life. And he says here, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is interesting is that when people die, they rarely bow their heads. In fact, it is far more common for people to raise their heads as they try and get just one more breath of air. Not Jesus. When he knew that God the Father had been satisfied and that the price of salvation had been paid, he willingly allowed his spirit to leave his body. So this is what we read in chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Now, From all accounts, Jesus died quickly. Why? Yes, his body bled and it was beaten and it was bruised. It certainly, uh, well, we understand that uh, his physical condition certainly didn't help. But he didn't die because of his injuries. He died quickly because he chose to die quickly. And so we we read this, no one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I have received from my father. So let's reiterate the point that Jesus was not a victim. His life was not taken from him. Rather, he he solemnly gave up his spirit. Jesus, even at death, he was death's master. In other words, death could not take him until he had given permission for death to do so. Now, there is an expression that unfortunately gets used uh, more often than it should. And, uh, and it's, it's in the context of somebody who dies of suicide. And, and we hear this. We hear they took their own life. It is, in fact, a misnomer because only God can give and can take a life. What the person has done, the deceased has done, is that is end their life. And it is one thing to end your physical life or even to end somebody else's life, which we call murder, but only God has the power to lay it down and to take it up again. And that is exactly what will happen in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He will take it up again. And because of Jesus and what, and that is what, what he did, he did for himself. And because he rose from the dead, we will also rise. Now, from this point on, Jesus on the cross, there are no more words. He's dead. What we will be looking at now and next week is what happens to his body. Now, there are two groups of people involved here. Um, The first group of people are are the Romans. They deal with his body while it is hanging on the cross. And the second group are the Jews, as they placed his body in a tomb. And this is in the, in the last few verses of this wonderful chapter. So let's go to verse 31, the day of preparation. And in verse 31 we read, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. All four Gospels tell us that the crucifixion of Jesus took place on the day of preparation. And the, the, the term, the, the name the day of preparation is used exclusively in the scriptures with respect to the day that Jesus died. Now in Judaism, the day of preparation immediately preceded the weekly Sabbath. Now as the name suggests, it was a day, it was a, a day that uh, people began to make preparations for the Sabbath because they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. Therefore, it had to be prepared the day before. Now, John tells us that this was, not only was it a a Sabbath day, but this was a special Sabbath because of the yearly Passover, and it was also the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Animals had to be slaughtered and cooked so that all will be ready for the Passover service. It also removed the, the, it also involved the removal of leaven in preparation for the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now let me just take you back a little bit uh, in the history, in the biblical history. Now historically, as preparation for the first Passover, while 
that were still in Egypt, while they were still slaves in Egypt, the people of Israel had been told to slaughter a selected lamb, to place its blood around the exterior of the door, then roast it whole over a fire, and they had to be consumed before midnight. The preparation was so that the angel that brought death would pass over all the houses that were marked with the blood of the lamb. What is interesting is that in this chapter, the Gospel of John mentions preparation day three times in verse 14, in verse 31, and in verse 42. Like we have said previously, the Gospel of John has, has, has many layers. And you can certainly just read it over or skim across the top of it. But many times we need to slow down and say, what else? What else is, is John trying to tell us here? Now, I believe Hebrews can enlighten us as to one aspect of this deeper significance. And uh, we go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire but a body that you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. As part of the incarnation, God prepared a body for the son, his precious son to live in. And God also prepared his body in which he was to dine. It was the same body. And like the lamb that was slaughtered and prepared on this day and then served as a meal, Jesus' perfect body was now slaughtered and offered as the perfect sacrifice. Now this should ring some bells because this is exactly what we do when we come together in communion. We recall the words of Jesus when he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we go to our next verses, and we're going to talk about the blood and the water. And the verses that we'll be looking at in verses 31 to 34, and then verses 36 to 37. And so this is what we read. Now, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus aside with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then we jump a verse. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I don't know whether you realize or not, but in the last few chapters of John, so much has happened. From the arrest to the trial 
to the crucifixion. It seems that so much has happened, but the, the, his enemies, the authorities, the Jewish authorities, they, they were in a hurry. Now that Jesus is dead, they should settle down, right? No, they're still, they're still in a hurry. This time they're in a hurry to pull his body down from the cross. Why? Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy 21, it makes it clear that if, if an individual were put to death and hung on a tree, that his body would not be allowed to remain on the tree overnight. It had to be buried before sunset because it was cursed. Now, for the Jews, a violation of this law any time would be bad. But particularly now, on the Passover Sabbath, was simply unthinkable. Therefore, the Jews needed Jesus and those with him to die quickly. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of Jesus and those crucified with him to be broken. Now, to break the legs of those hanging on the cross, the soldiers would use a large mallet to to shatter the bones completely. This would eliminate any any support that that propped up the, the individual on the cross, resulting in the sudden slumping of the body followed by suffocation. Your, your diaphragm, you simply stop working. You, you can't breathe anymore. You simply die for lack of air. Yes, I know, it was barbaric, but at least it hastened the death because death by crucifixion was horrible. And yes, as part of the punishment, the Romans wanted the the bodies of those who had been sentenced and crucified, they wanted to be there hanging for several days. But this was a special occasion, a special situation. Now, Jesus had been on the cross for approximately six hours by this stage. And uh, normally people didn't die so quickly. This is why when the soldiers came to Jesus, they were surprised that he was already dead. So they did not do what they were told, that what they were commanded to do. The bones, you see, the bones, it was a way in which the bones of the Lord were protected by the Lord. And there are several Old Testament passages that John sees as being Fulfilled, just as many have been fulfilled up to this point, they continue to be fulfilled. In Numbers, when it gives instructions regarding the Passover lamb, we read in Numbers 9, verse 12, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statutes of the Passover, they shall observe it. The whole of the Old Testament sacrificial system was a preparation. There's that word again, was a preparation. A preparation for what? It it all pointed toward something else, something greater that was going to come, something that was going to be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled this very moment, this very sacred moment of Jesus on the cross. Jesus was therefore the Passover Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
Then we have King David in Psalm 34 speaking of the Messiah. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's in Psalm 34 verse 20. Now, you're probably thinking, well, what is the big deal about broken bones? He was already dead anyway. Who cares? It is important because he had to be perfect. Perfect in life, perfect in death, and perfect in his burial. A lamb without blemish or spot. Absolute perfection. Otherwise, the sacrifice would be rejected. What's even more remarkable is that when the the Roman soldier chose not to break his legs but pierce his side, he was also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Every aspect of the crucifixion of Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, even the details. In Zechariah, we read, in, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for only for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. What is this? Uh, why pierce his side? Well, I'm sure there are more reasons, but let me give you a couple. Firstly, the piercing of his side was his ID. It was his identification. It was important in order that when people later saw Jesus rising from the dead, they saw Jesus walk amongst them for about 40 days after his resurrection, that they had to know with certainty that it was indeed Jesus who had come back to life, that he was he who was resurrected and not some other imposter that looked like Jesus. Let's recall the words of Jesus to Thomas after Thomas had been doubting the uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appeared to them and then he directed himself specifically to Thomas in verse in chapter 20 verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, "Put your finger here, see my hands, and reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe." Secondly, the spiritual significance of the blood and the water. Jesus used both blood and water as important symbols in his teaching. They appear regularly in the Gospel of John. Water has been associated with cleansing, the new birth, the Holy Spirit. And then in the old, in the old system, the blood of the Lamb had to also, as they sacrificed the, the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb had to flow at the moment of death. So it could be sprinkled. So that's why the priest many times would actually stab the heart of the animal. So blood referred to Jesus' sacrificial death, which brings life to the world. I like the words of uh, Warren Weasby, the late Warren Weasby, who put it this way. He said, the blood speaks of our justification, the water of our sanctification. The justification, remember, is a once-off event, and the, the sanctification is, is the process. 
The blood takes care of the guilt of sin, he says, and then the water deals with the stain of sin. Now, in verse 35, we go back a bit in verse 35. Let me share with you about the importance of believing. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. The the importance of believing in Jesus is a major theme here. I know it's not very popular today. It doesn't matter what you believe, they say. Well, it certainly mattered to John as he wrote his gospel. John was an eyewitness. He was right there at the cross. And he, as he writes this, he wants people, he wants his readers to believe him with respect to this momentous event, never to be repeated again in human history. Everything that he's describing, he wants people to believe everything that he's writing here. This is not some myth or some fairy tale that is made up, but these are true historical events with tremendous significance for all. So it is important that this, his record of the events be viewed as trustworthy so that people, why? So that John is a good author? No, because he is pointing others to, to believe, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And according to John chapter 20, verse 21, this is the very purpose for which he wrote this wonderful gospel that we are going through. Now, despite his insistence on declaring the truth, there have been billions of people who have come and gone over the last 2,000 years who have doubted the story of Jesus actually dying and then rising from the dead. Well, let's, let's for now, we will deal with the resurrection later on further down the line, but for now, let us deal with his dying. Many many of these doubters are actually saying this from the pulpit in many so-called Christian churches. Here is uh, one such doubter as he wrote to a, uh, a, news, a news editor. He wrote this letter. He said, uh, D. Eutychus, our preacher said on, on, on Easter that Jesus just swooned or he, that he just passed out on the cross and that the disciples simply nursed him back to health. What do you think? And then the, uh, the editor's reply was this, uh, Dear reader, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the blistering sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for 72 hours and see what happens. In these times of uncertainty, times of anxiety, this is something that we can believe in. Believe the story, but more importantly, believe in the person who the story is about. Though the world 
may not want to think about death most of the time. We just want to not talk about it and just put it aside. Times like these tend to shake our complacency and force us to consider our own mortality. Let me remind you, let me remind you, death has a 100% success rate. None of us are going to make it here alive. No one is going to make it out of here alive. Uh, and, And therefore, we all have to be confronted with this, this reality. And then face judgment. It is appointed for man to die and then face judgment. That's that's what the Bible tells us. And the prophet Amos uh, challenges us. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, prepare, there's that word again, prepare to meet your God. Now, this pandemic has already caused billions of people around the world a significant degree of collective anguish, hasn't it? They've seen their savings gone. They've seen their being retrenched from work. They go to the supermarket to find some food. It's not there. It's hard to find. So, so materially, people are, are afraid of losing their livelihoods or worse, worse than that, losing their, their life or their loved ones' life in this world. In other words, the, their, their, their life expectancy suddenly is cut short and they're all sort of saying, well, I'm not prepared to die. I'm not prepared for this. But let's look at it in perspective. Satan, the devil, our very cunning enemy, he's always trying to keep us distracted from the, the truth of what God is trying to tell us. He's trying to keep us distracted and busy in preparing for this life, in setting up insurances and in sharing up uh, retirement plans so that we will be able to, to have a better life in this world, to just think only of this life. He doesn't want us to prepare or to think about the next one. We actually have no control of either. But let me remind you that one is temporal The next one is eternal. I ask you to reconsider your life right now. Where will you spend eternity? There's only two possible locations, either in heaven or in hell. To those who do not yet believe in Jesus, let me ask you, does the truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins move your heart to believe in him or not? Are you aware that you need to believe in him and trust only in him in order to have eternal life? What you need to do is confess and repent of your sins. Ask for forgiveness and acknowledge Jesus as your saviour. There is no one else you can go to, only Jesus. And once you have done that, you are prepared to live a life that honours him here and a life that will honour him for eternity. If you're already a believer, think about, about what is happening. Thinking about death and talking about death should not be too difficult 
because death, you see, is no longer a threat to us. Because of Jesus, death has lost its, its, its sting. His death has become our death. His, resur- his resurrection, our resurrection. Because he lived, we will also live even, even though we might die. So what should be our reaction to the current pandemic? Listen to the Apostle Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. There's that word again, preparing. Preparing your minds for action. And because you see that the mind is important. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was writing to a people who were persecuted. They didn't have a home. They didn't have a place. They were scattered around. And so he tells them to be sober-minded. He tells them to prepare for what is happening, for what is to come. To be sober-minded means to be level-headed. It means that on the one hand, we don't want to be anxious and, and worried and given into despair. And we have seen the, the scenes in the media and maybe even witnessed it ourselves in the supermarkets. On the other, on the other extreme, we don't want to be indifferent to the situation and careless and indifferent to those who are suffering, of those suffering around us here and even around the world. And we want to help wherever we are called to help. So let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that whatever we will have to endure, your pain, your heartache, your sorrows, in God's economy, none of this is wasted. In fact, it is all a preparation, a preparation for the times in which we live. God has already been preparing us and possibly preparing us for something that is much worse than this. They, this is God's way of, of him preparing us for his service. Why? Because our hope is not in this world, but it is set on Jesus Christ, in whom we are eternally secure. Jesus Christ, our rock, our salvation. In him, only him, do we have hope. And this is our word for this morning. And uh, just to think about a little bit more about uh, our theme this morning. We're going to be uh, taken to our last song, and it is the Rock of Ages. Let us uh, sing these, these wonderful words of a great old hymn. And Christ is our Rock of Ages. Amen.